Show us Christ. It's a simple three-worded prayer. But can you think of any better prayer for us to pray as we go to God's Word together? Our statement of faith as a church rightly affirms that all Scripture is a testimony to Christ. When most people turned away from Christ, after the feeding of the 5,000, he turned to his disciples and said, will you also go away? And Peter responded for the disciples, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that's why we need the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to show us Christ today. We all need Him. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Samuel 23. It's on page 230 in your pew Bible. As we continue our series on the life of David, let's see how it points us to Jesus Christ. The title of today's message is God Our Helper. That's how David refers to the Lord in Psalm 54, which David wrote when the events of 1 Samuel 23 were taking place in his life. To bring you up to speed, uh, David is still on the run, just as he was in chapters 21 and 22 from Saul. You might recall that as he went to the five places in those two chapters, he was putting more and more geographical distance between him and King Saul, who was pursuing David to kill him. And now in chapter 23, the narrator highlights for us the spiritual difference between David and Saul. David is keenly aware of God's guidance and leadership in his life, whereas Saul is completely out of touch with God. He makes reference to God's will. He thinks God's at work in his life, but he's not. Whereas David is keenly aware of God's guidance and leadership in his life, Saul is out of touch. He, he resorts to human wisdom and strategies to determine his course of action. And because David is seeking the Lord and his guidance, David's path eventually leads to deliverance. But Saul's path eventually leads to his own self-destruction. The point of this passage, in essence, is that contrary to popular belief, God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who trust in Him. The Lord helps and upholds His people. That's the point of chapter 23. But how exactly does God do this? It's a wonderful uh, verse, Psalm 54, where David says, God is my helper, the Lord is the upholder of my life. But how exactly does God help his people? How does the Lord uphold us, especially when life gets really, really hard? How does the Lord help us to keep standing firm and to walk forward in faith? How does God do that? Well, there's uh, many ways God does that, but a few of the primary ways appear right here in 1 Samuel chapter 23. First of all, God interacts with us. What an amazing thought. God interacts with us. Look at 1 Samuel 23, verses 1 to 14. 
Now they, that is the 400 men who had joined themselves to David, told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar the son of Ahimelech had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with, his, with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told David, told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds of the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. This chapter begins with a crisis in Keilah, a town that is situated in the western foothills of Judah. You see a map there where some of the events of chapter 23 are taking place. That's just to give you an idea geographically of what's going on. Keilah was three miles south of Adullam, which was near the forest of Hereth where David and his men were hiding. That's where we left off in chapter 22. And the hills between Judah and Philistia, as you can see, made Keilah particularly vulnerable to Philistine raids on their threshing floors. Threshing floors, you might know, is where the, the grain is separated from the husks after the harvest. The raids were frustrating to the people of Keilah because the Philistines ran off with the grain after the farmers had done all the work of raising the crops and threshing them. And then the Philistines would just attack and take off with them. But it was more than frustrating. It was also life-threatening because no grain meant no bread. And the people of the city would not be able to get some of the basic sustenance of life if the enemy kept running off with their bread. So when David gets word about the crisis in Keilah, he asks the Lord, should I go and attack the Philistines? The Lord says, yes, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. 
David goes to his men and tells them what God has said, and they're like, are you kidding? We're, we're like scared to death here in Judah, and we're going to go and attack the Philistines? So David asked God again, Lord, did I hear you right the first time? The Lord says, get up and go to Keilah. I'll give the Philistines into your hands. And sure enough, God does. David and his men, who now number 600, they started off at 400, go and attack the Philistines, and they put a whooping on them. And they take their livestock for the people of Keilah and to feed themselves, and he saves Keilah out of their hands. Then Saul finds out that David and his men are in Keilah, and Saul thinks, this is great. God has given David into my hand because he's locked himself into a city with with walls and gates and bars. He's a sitting duck. So Saul summons his army and sets out for Keilah to capture David. But David gets wind of the plot. And so he tells Abiathar the priest to bring him the ephod. The ephod is a a little hard to figure out in Scripture. It could refer to a couple of things. It certainly referred to a a priestly garment that was worn when they were performing their duties in the tabernacle. But there's also an indication that it might have been a a little container. But either way, the, the ephod, whether it was a separate container in addition to the garment that the priests wore, or perhaps a pouch actually in the garment, the ephod contained the urim and the thummim which were like dice that were used to determine God's will when you wanted a yes or no answer. And that's the case here. Uh, Some say that they were like gemstones and there was some sort of an indication of a yes or no answer and you would, in essence, kind of roll the dice. And the outcome of the roll would be God's will for a given situation. Yes, do this or no, don't do this. Or yes, this is true or no, this is false. A simple yes or no, true or false kind of a response. And so David, uh, God responds to David's inquiry saying, yes, Saul is coming for you. And yes, the people of Keilah will give you up to him. So David decides to get out of Dodge with his men, who again number now around 600, and were told that they went wherever they could go. They're just desperate. They're on the run. They're, they're, they're running from Saul and his army. Well, Saul finds out that they've escaped from Keilah, and so he calls off the attack. But we're told that Saul continued to search for David every day, but God did not give David into his hand. But as we consider the events of this section, the first 14 verses of 1 Samuel 23, I want you to see that verse 6 is the center of this section. Everything before and after verse 6 run parallel off that verse. Verse 6 is, When Abiathar the son of Ahimelech had fled to David and Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. And the ephod was used to seek out the guidance of God. Look at that diagram and see how everything Uh, runs parallel off that center verse, verse 6. It's all about seeking God's guidance. So the report about the Philistines attack, David seeks guidance from the Lord. David uh, saves Keilah. Then there's this talk about Abithar and the Ephar. Now we know how David's getting his guidance from God. 
Then Saul sets to attack Keilah. But then David seeks guidance from the Lord. And then there's the report about David's escape. So you can see in this chiastic structure how these parallel events are running off the central statement in verse 6 regarding Abiathar and the ephod. The point is is that verse 6 is the hinge of this whole section. It tells us how Keilah was saved in verses 1 to 5, and then how David and his men were saved in verses 7 to 14. It was by seeking the Lord's guidance in both instances. And that's the link between the believers in the Bible days and us as believers today. The absolute need we have for God's guidance. Would you agree with that? Would you agree that we need God's guidance every single day if we're going to be wise about our lives? You know, I was thinking that we may wish that we, like David, could just get a direct yes or no answer from God. In response to questions like, God, should I marry this person? Should I take this job opportunity? Should I homeschool my kids? Should I send them to public school, Christian school? We may wish that we could simply take a couple of gemstones that God gives us and roll the dice and say, okay, this is what God wants specifically in this situation. I get it. In some ways that would be really nice, wouldn't it? But let's remember a couple of things. Number one, um, David fulfilled a slightly different role than we do in salvation history. This was the anointed king of Israel from whom the Messiah would come. It was absolutely critical that every single step David took, literally physically, was guided by God in this season of his life in order to preserve David's life. God would later make a promise to David that the Messiah would come through his line of descendants. So if David dies before that line is established, he gets married and has kids through whom the Messiah would come, then God's promise cannot be fulfilled. God's plan would fail. So God dealt with David directly. You and I don't need this precise guidance in literally every step we take on a given day. Because David's function in salvation history is just different from ours. And it's kind of egotistical to suggest otherwise. But in principle, let's remember that there's no real big difference between David and us. And what I mean by that is this. How was it in this situation in David's life was was God's guidance sought and given? Wasn't it through God's appointed priest? Isn't that the same privilege that we enjoy today as believers? And yet on a much greater level? After all, David had Abiathar as his priest. Who do we have as our priest? The Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of God Himself has gone to heaven to be our great high priest. 
That's really one of the central points of the book of Hebrews, which we studied a couple of years ago. The preacher addresses his fellow Christians in this New Testament letter saying, in chapter 10, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. See, at one time, our conscience was condemned on account of our sin. That sin created a barrier between us and God. But Jesus, through his death and resurrection, removed that barrier for all who believe in him. He took away our sins through his sacrifice for us. And now if we have trusted in Christ as our Savior, believing that He is our righteousness, that He alone can forgive our sins, that our salvation is based on His work, not on our religious work or the good things that we do, then our conscience no longer condemns us. It has been sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ and and baptism Having our bodies washed with pure water is an, is an outward sign, an expression, of, an indication of what has taken place in our innermost being. Eugene Peterson paraphrases the final verses of Hebrews 4 this way. Now that we know what we have, Jesus, this great high priest with ready access to God, let's not let it slip through our fingers. We don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing, experienced it all but the sin. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take the mercy, accept the help. (laughs) That's good counsel from God's word. God has given us as believers direct access to himself through Jesus Christ, his son. He has given us everything we need to know through the completed canon of Scripture, something that David did not have, not by a long stretch in his day. God has promised to give wisdom to any believer who asks. Right? James 1.5 If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all people generously and without rebuke, and it will be given to you. God has given us the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer to to guide us into His truth, not only so that we can understand the clear commands and principles and, and precepts of Scripture, but through prayer, the Holy Spirit helps us take what is written here and apply it in the wisest way to any given situation we face. But in seeking guidance from God, we should never separate the work of the Spirit from the work of the Scriptures. Because the Bible is what? It's the what of the Spirit. It's the sword of the Spirit. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to guide the people of God.
sometimes explicitly in black and white commands and principles and promises, but sometimes it's understanding what the Bible says on a number of different levels about a number of different things, taking it all in our mind and heart and bathing these truths in prayer and then getting a real sense of the Holy Spirit, not only what is the right way to go, but what is the wisest way to go. Not just what is the good way to go, Lord, but what is the best way to go. Not just what will be pleasing to you, God, what will be most pleasing to you? What will be the best for my life? The author of Hebrews reminds us that God's word is living and active. Not was, it is living and active. Through the ancient texts of the Old and New Testament, God still speaks to his people today. John Stott put it this way, The Lord speaks, present tense, through what was spoken, past tense. Isn't that good? The Lord speaks through what was spoken. So here's the question. Will we be like David who earnestly sought the Lord's guidance? Or will we be like Saul, who relied on human perceptions and strategies? Nowhere in the text does it say that Saul sought God's will. Saul did size up the situation and assumed what God's will was. Oh, great, God has given David in my hands. But we rewrite in the chapter, but the Lord did not give David into Saul's hands. What Saul perceived as God's will was the very opposite of what God was doing. Because Saul wasn't seeking God's guidance. Now, there was a time when Saul did seek God's guidance. Back in 1 Samuel 14, the chapter before God rejects Saul as king of Israel, It's actually the chapter, chapter 14, where Saul makes a rash vow. And we get the indication, even before God rejected him, that even when Saul was seeking God's guidance, something is amiss. Something isn't right. Saul is acting foolishly, not wisely. And it seems to be that Saul had made up his mind what he was going to do before he ever sought the Lord's counsel. It's like seeking the Lord was kind of an afterthought, right? He is the God of Israel. We really should see what he has to say about this, but I kind of really all decided what I'm going to do. Listen to these verses from 1 Samuel 14. Saul said, let's chase the Philistines all night and plunder them until sunrise. Let's destroy every last one of them. His men replied, we'll do whatever you think is best. But the priest said, let's ask God first. So Saul asked God, should we go after the Philistines? Will you help us defeat them? But God made no reply that day. Saul sought the Lord's guidance as an afterthought. He had already made up his mind what he wanted to do. You know, sometimes we can be like Saul and do the same thing. We mistake our own desires and impulses for the leading of the Holy Spirit while conveniently ignoring the clear teachings of Scripture. This happens not only at an individual level, but also at a corporate level, an ecclesiastic level, 
with whole churches and even denominations of churches. You know what most mainline churches do today? Which way is the wind blowing? What's the prevailing trend in culture right now? Oh, that's the way we'll go. Oh, society redefines marriage? Okay, yeah, we're good with that, whatever society says. Yeah, we'll hang a rainbow flag out in front. We'll affirm homosexuals, transgenders, all the kinds of other perversions that God's word clearly forbids and condemns. And we'll even support the slaughter of unborn children and call it loving your neighbor. As evangelicals, we might sit back and say, Amen, brother, preach it. You are so right. And that is right. In that they are wrong to do those things, clearly going against God's word. They reject God's guidance on a macro level. But aren't we often guilty of doing the same thing on a micro level? Isn't that where the downgrade begins? In the little things? The devil's in the details, as they say. We make plans without praying about them. Without committing them to the Lord. We make decisions without consulting Scripture to say, well, what does God have to say about that? What principles come into play? What should I be considering as I think through this matter? And if we go to God at all in prayer or the Scriptures, we, like Saul, do it as an act of formality once our minds have really already been made up. We've already decided that we're going to take that job, buy that car, date that girl, or file for divorce. We'll even take Scripture out of context so that it supports what we want to do. Or we'll tell others, well, I prayed about it and God gave me a real peace about what I'm going to do. And we conveniently forget that the Spirit of God will never lead a child of God to go against the Word of God. The Spirit of God guides us into all truth, God's truth, so that Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. That's what we are. We are truth people because we are Christ people. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Proverbs 29.8.9 is an important verse to remember because there the Lord says, if anyone turns a deaf ear to my instruction, even his prayer is detestable to me. If anyone turns a deaf ear to my instruction, even his prayer is detestable. It's an abomination to me. The Lord helps and upholds his people by interacting with us. Praise God but it's through the Word of God in prayer. Brothers and sisters, we have direct access to God Himself through Jesus Christ. If we have trusted in Him as our Savior, He is our great High Priest who always lives to make intercession for us. He has opened up the new and living way through His shed blood on the cross by which we receive forgiveness of sins. 
So why would we ever rely on our own impulses and intuitions? When we can get guidance from God himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all working together for our good. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they what? They follow me. How does God help and uphold his people? First, he interacts with us through the word of God in prayer. What an awesome privilege that is. Number two, God invigorates us. God invigorates us with the encouragement of others. Look at 1 Samuel 23, 15 to 18. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, ironically, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horash, and Jonathan went home. Horash is about 14 miles southeast of Keilah, in the wilderness of Ziph, a wooded region in the hills of Judah, or Judea. David retreats to this wooded location as Saul continues to search for him. They've got this deadly hide-and-seek game going on. I mean, it's no game, but that's what's going on. Verse 15 says, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. You know, it's easy for us to... um, read that and kind of just not put ourselves in David's shoes. Oh yeah, David's on the run from Saul. He went here to here to here to here to here. And this is what God was doing here and here and here and here and here. And Saul continues to chase him. But we know God didn't give David into Saul's hands. But we're we're reading this after the fact. David is living in the moment. He knows that God has anointed him to be king of Israel, but he at the same time literally is running for his life. Saul is sending his best soldiers after him, combing the territory looking for him and his men. I want you to picture if you were hiding in your house because you knew there were people in there that were searching your house to kill you. Imagine that you are aware that they're looking for you, that they've broken into your house and you're hiding in a closet somewhere in your house and through the crack of the door or maybe through the shutter panels as you peer out your heart thumping out of your chest you see that there's five men searching for you and they are thoroughly equipped and they're like a crack squad like they are like a SWAT team and they are looking for you to kill you That's what it was like for David and his men, proportionately speaking. There were 600 of them hiding out in the hills. 
But there were 3,000, according to chapter 24, verse 2, of Saul's elite troops, his very best soldiers, seeking them out. Five to one odds. Outnumbered, totally out-resourced, humanly speaking. At a very clear disadvantage, and all they could do was hide in the hills. But Jonathan, Saul's son, got up and went to David at Horesh. And I might add, at great risk to his own life. Do you remember what happened the last time that Jonathan tried to stick up for David? To defend him before his father, Saul flew into a rage and hurled his spear at his own son, intending to kill him. And Saul is now more bent than ever on finding David and killing him. And Jonathan gets up and goes to David at Horash. In the providence of God, he's able to find him. I was trying to picture that scene. Think of how exhausted David was. On the, remember, he doesn't have a car or a bicycle. <laughs> He's on foot on rugged terrain. And it's not just him. He's responsible now for 600 men who have joined themselves to him. He has been running a long time. How exhausted he must have been. Think of how limited his resources were. Imagine the burden that David felt as a leader as he had to look out for 600 men besides himself. Think of how bleak everything appeared. Humanly speaking, it's only a matter of time before he finds me. Hungry, exhausted, worn and weary, and nowhere to go. And then comes Jonathan. Talk about a sight for sore eyes. I wonder if David broke down when he saw him. Have you ever been in a moment like that where it was just a really hard spot in your life and your best friend or someone really close to you shows up and that's just when you need it? I mean, you almost like, it's almost like you collapse because now they're there to help carry the burden that you've been carrying all along. His best friend was there when David needed him most. But I want you to know how Jonathan encouraged David. What does the text say? He strengthened his hand in God. The NIV says that Jonathan helped David find strength in God. Jonathan says, in essence, David, don't despair. My father is never going to find you. You're going to be the next king of Israel, and I'm going to be right there beside you, helping you in whatever way I can. And my father also knows this. Jonathan reminded David of the anointing that he had received from the prophet Samuel. The promise from God that David would one day be king. Now, Jonathan mistakenly assumed that he would be alive when that happened. And while we, in a sense, can't really fault Jonathan for this, he, he, 
He didn't have a prediction of his own death. He was a young man and assumed, well, of course he would be alive, serving next to David. But it is a reminder, isn't it, that we can only bank on what God has actually said. We can't take anything else for granted because we don't know what a day will bring forth. Still, Jonathan fulfills a very positive role here. He is a conduit of blessing to David. He is a pipeline of God's grace and encouragement to David. Now, Jonathan's very presence truly would have been a comfort and encouragement to David. But Jonathan's presence wouldn't provide the ongoing encouragement that David needed. And so Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. It wasn't in their friendship. It wasn't in Jonathan per se. David, uh, Jonathan pointed David to God who would always be with him, whose word was always sure. He would always be faithful. There would come a day when Jonathan would no longer be around. So he gave David that which would always encourage him, the sure word of God. He knew that God's word would endure, that God would keep his promise, that prophecy will be fulfilled. You mark this down. Encouragement from God for the people of God comes from the word of God. Encouragement from God for the people of God comes from the word of God. And let me say, that's why Bible teaching plays such a central role in our ministries here at Webster Bible Church. From nursery all the way through our senior saints ministry. Why do we do that? Why is there such an emphasis on Bible teaching? Here's why. Because we want to equip God's people with that which will encourage them most. And it's the Word of God. Paul wrote in Romans 15.4 that the things that were written beforehand were written for our instruction so that we, through endurance and through encouragement from the Scriptures, might have hope. A confident expectation that God will be true to His Word. God will keep every promise that He has made. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, All the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ, and in Him they are amen to the glory of God through us as we live to experience and lay hold of the promises of God. It's the living and abiding Word of God. Let's face it, we can't always count on people, even the people that we have helped. I mean, David saved the citizens of Keilah. You would think a little gratitude would come back to benefit David in some way. But they were ready to give David up. And I want to empathize a little bit here with the citizens of Keilah. Surely they had heard about the slaughter of the entire town at Nob. 
And surely they were thinking, if we don't give David up, I mean, we really appreciate what he and his men have done for us. But I'm not ready to see my wife and my kids and my infants and my animals and my neighbors, our entire town, slaughtered in order to save one man. I'm not saying they were right for saying that, but we can understand why they were thinking that way. Faithful friends are hard to find. That's why they're so few and far between, and that's why they're such a treasure to us when we're blessed with them. David's son Solomon wrote, Many will say they are loyal friends, but who can find one who is truly reliable? Proverbs 26. Many will say they are loyal friends, but who can find one who is truly reliable? Yep, reliable friends are our rare find. Would you agree with that? And that's what makes them such a treasure. But the Lord helps and upholds his people by invigorating them, by energizing them with friends that point them to God's sure word. And every believer needs this kind of encouragement. In his second letter to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul wrote, When we, that is Paul and Timothy, arrived in Macedonia, there was no rest for us. We faced conflict from every direction with battles on the outside and fear on the inside. But God, who encourages those who are discouraged, encouraged us by the arrival of Titus. 2 Corinthians 7, 5-6. Paul? The apostle, like the guy who wrote all those New Testament letters, discouraged? Yeah. Battles on the outside, fears on the inside, he confesses. But God, who comforts the downcast, the discouraged, comforted us, encouraged us by the coming of Titus, a faithful friend. And that goes to show us that even the strongest, most mature believers need encouragement from time to time. Are you a faithful friend that provides that kind of encouragement? Paul needed encouragement. He was a pretty strong Christian, a pretty mature believer. But yeah, he got discouraged from time to time. He even got afraid from time to time. And so did David, a man after God's own heart. They need an encouragement, and so do we. And in Jonathan's ministry to David, don't we get a little bit of a preview, a glimpse of our ultimate friend, the Lord Jesus Christ? The one who will never leave us nor forsake us, the one who is faithful to his covenant? On May 26, 1860, the Scottish minister, Andrew Bonar, referred in his diary to a visit that he had made to a neighborhood of a previous parish he had served. And on that day, he wrote, and I quote, I spent an hour in my old retreat in the wood of Dunsinane, the place which I used to call the wood of Ziff, where God has often strengthened my hands, my divine Jonathan meeting me there. End quote. His divine Jonathan. 
clearly a reference to the Lord himself, the friend who sticks closer than a brother. When's the last time you thought about the words of the precious hymn, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Do you not at that? Is there trouble anywhere? Yep. We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrow share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do your friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. The best friends are those who strengthen our hand in God and point us to the truest friend that anybody ever had, the Lord Jesus himself. Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God because Jonathan knew it was ultimately the Lord's presence that David needed. And the Lord would be with David even when Jonathan was long gone. The Lord helps and upholds his people. He does this by interacting with us through the word of God and prayer, by invigorating us through the encouragement of faithful friends that come right when they are needed. And thirdly, God does this by intervening for us. Look at verses 19 to 29 of 1 Samuel 23. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah saying, is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh on the hill of Hekelah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and, and come back to me with more or sure information. Then I will go with you and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon and the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went up one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. 
Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the stronghold of Engedi. <laughs> Talk about getting rescued at the last desperate moment. You can even feel the tension mount as we read this narrative. The Ziphite's words to Saul in verse 19 are repeated verbatim in the title of Psalm 54, which the Postumus read earlier, where David wrote, When the Ziphites went and told Saul, Is not David hiding among us? As David calls on God to save him in this psalm, he refers to the Ziphites in verse 3 as ruthless men who do not set God before themselves. They don't set God before themselves. Their agenda in life is, what's in it for me? What, what can I get out of this? How will the king be in my debt if I give up David to him? They have no regard for God, therefore they have no regard for the Lord's servant. They're only too happy to ingratiate themselves with Saul and turn David over to him if that will place the king of Israel in their debt. After acknowledging their ruthlessness in this psalm, David immediately goes on to say in Psalm 54 verse 4, Behold, God is my helper, the Lord is the upholder of my life. David goes on to say in that psalm, as you might recall, that God will not only deliver him, but he'll put an end to his enemies. And David will live to give thanks to God and offer a free will offering to him as he looks in triumph on his enemies. So I read that, I thought, isn't this also a preview of our Savior's greater experience in his darkest hour? Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane and the angels come and strengthen him. Hours later, he's mocked, beaten, crucified on the hill of Calvary and all looks lost as Jesus bows his head and gives up the ghost. He's buried in a nearby sepulcher. And his enemy surely wondered, why was he so foolish to think that he could be delivered? But the deliverance comes, doesn't it? In the most darkest hour and in the most unexpected way. Resurrection. <laughs> Resurrection. And it comes from an unlikely source, God. You say, well, Pastor Matt, what do you mean God? God would be the most likely source. Yeah, we know that because we know the whole story. But that's not what Jesus' generation thought. Not those that were walking by the cross, wagging their heads and making fun of him. That's not what they thought. Do you remember what Isaiah, speaking from the people's perspective, prophesied 700 years before it ever happened? Listen afresh to his words. He said, we considered him punished by God, stricken by God, afflicted by God. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And it's by his wounds that we are healed. And here's the right perspective. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, his only son, the iniquity of us all. Yes, in a very real sense, Jesus was punished by God because he took our place. We deserve the punishment. We deserve to be smitten. We deserve to have God turn his face away from us. We deserve to be cast away forever from the glorious presence of God. But Jesus bore the punishment in our place so that we could be forgiven. Jesus knew that resurrection day was coming. He knew that God would not allow his body to see corruption, but that he would be reigning at God's right hand, where he is right now interceding for all who trust in him. Jesus was vindicated by God, wasn't he? Jesus won the victory. And so will all who trust in him. David placed his faith in God and was not disappointed. I love what Joyce Baldwin writes in her commentary. She says, at the 11th hour, David finds that his trust in God has not been misplaced. Think about it, how close this was. Saul and his army scaling up one side of the mountain in hot pursuit. David is just over the crest, running down, hurrying to get away from Saul. All looks lost in this report. The Philistines have invaded the land. Right as Saul is about to descend on David. Why? Because God would not give David into Saul's hands. And as we learned last week, even God's enemies suit God's purpose. Dale Davis writes, quote, Of course, you can read this with blind, unbelieving eyes, babbling about how David can thank his lucky stars that he eluded Saul. Or you can read it with a clear vision of faith, exulting in the endless variety of ways in which the Lord delivers his servants. Is this providence for David only? Don't some of us have some stories to tell about God's strange saviors and startling timing? Is it only on the pages of Scripture that the Lord's providence works? End quote. Surely not. The issue is whether we have eyes to see and rejoice over God's intervening grace in our lives time and time again. Now Saul is not gone for good. The final relief has not come But 1 Samuel 23 shows us how God keeps his people on their feet and moving forward when everything around them looks dark. How does God help and uphold his people? He interacts with us through the word of God in prayer. He invigorates us with the encouragement we receive from faithful friends who point us to the Lord And he intervenes for us, often 
in the most unexpected ways. This is how God helps and upholds his people until our final relief comes. Until the day that Jesus returns or calls us home. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your precious word and how it richly teaches us so many lessons that are applicable to our lives today. Lord, each person sitting here needs to hear something from you. For some, it's to put their faith in you for the very first time, embracing you as Lord and Savior. For some, it's giving profession of that faith through baptism as a public testimony that they have trusted in you. For others, it might be uh, stop making up their own minds before they search your word and go to you in prayer, committing their plans to you. For others, it might be to be a better, more reliable, faithful friend like Jonathan, and even more so like Jesus. Lord, whatever the need is, whatever the, the hurt is in any given heart, we know that you are more than sufficient to meet that need and to give us that help that we so desperately look for from you. Be, work, be working in our hearts even as we close in these final moments. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.